Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society being fueled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. that everybody here all right good evening i was quite excited to be here i, I only know about uh, negroni talks from insta which is so i'm quite happy to be here in real life so i'm martin evans um, uh, as hugh said i'm a property developer sometimes it's not particularly good idea to say that in a in a in public um, but i'm also this year deputy chair of the london festival of architecture so uh, i think that's why i'm here tonight uh, the theme of the festival this year is boundaries, and that's what's inspired the title of tonight's event. Um, London is most definitely a city of boundaries, uh, just geographically north to south, with a great big watery boundary running through the middle. I'm a North Londoner, never hardly ever been to South London in my entire life, and uh, you know I'm, t- I'm told there be dragons, but. Um, uh, and then, uh, whether you're north or south, then east and west. And so I'm an East London boy, so uh, west of Oxford Circus is a desert of the unknown to, to me. Not good, that, uh, but it is how it is. London is uh, full of boundaries in boroughs. There are 32 boroughs in London, plus the city of London. Uh, that fact is recognised by the GLA. Um, Design for London was established specifically to meld those borders together and to create planning strategies and development strategies that meant that London was not a city of 32 or 33 smaller cities, that it was actually one big city that needed to work together. Um, DFL <coughs> morphed itself now into the regeneration team that Pooja uh, is here representing tonight that does much the same job. And then other than political boundaries, there are people like me who get to develop parts of this great city. The need to develop independently, because we all spend and invest our own money, uh, to create viable independent schemes drives a language of boundaries in our city. We talk about my scheme, our project, and so automatically, just by that language, we put fences and red lines on plans. We put red lines around boundaries. But of course, whilst they might be legal and technical boundaries, you can't just stop at an imagined red line around the edge of your scheme, it just would never work. And so, if you're a good developer, you need to stand up and look over your fence and understand how your scheme fits into the place in where you are developing. Of course, this bad system is not helped by the planning system uh, in our cities, Uh, a system that in London particularly has been gutted by austerity, um, and it simply ends up not being a level playing field. So, how do we encourage developers to look over their fences and care about more than that which drives their appraisals? 
I think it's simply about having some responsibility. Responsibility to work with planners, not against them in a combative process, to demonstrate a clear understanding that whilst there might be real financial and construction boundaries to development schemes in cities, political and social boundaries only exist where they are built. So how about if we all came to work every day determined to step outside the boundaries we create, work together and see our city for what it is, it's a beautiful mess that works best when it's most free. So to bring some proper intelligence to this argument this evening, um, I am joined by three extremely accomplished people. Uh, Selena Mason, where are you, Selena? There. Uh, Selena knows about boundaries, having spent her whole career making an impact on our built environment. After training and working as an architect, she took her considerable skills to the public sector as Director of Architecture and Design Review at CABE, spending three years as Deputy Head of Design at the Olympic Delivery Authority, and then moving to head up design integration as it morphed into the London Legacy Development Corporation. After three years at LDA, uh, at, at independent design practice, Selena joined Lendlease Europe in 2017 as Director of Master Planning, where she works across their very large and diverse portfolio. In her writing and speaking, Selena has always stressed the importance of master plans that are designed to break down boundaries to encourage and facilitate daily human contact through what she describes as the small rituals of daily community life. Sarah Featherstone here on my right is Director of London-based architecture practice Featherstone Young. She has explained that her interest in architecture is in the way that people shape their own environments and how architecture can stimulate rather than dictate activity and social interaction. Sarah has never shied away from a difficult brief, have you? No. Designing a rape and incest crisis centre in South Essex and very recently completing a new community centre to replace the Dale Youth Amateur Boxing Club's gym lost by the Grenfell Fire in 2017. Sarah has built private houses, art centres and a listed windmill in West Sussex. Outside of work, Sarah's a musician. She played in bands, sang apparently in the London Philharmonic Choir, is that right? And I'm reliably informed as a demon Scrabble player. <laughs> That's all true, right? <laughs> Pooja Agrawal, here in front of me, is an architect. She took up a new role earlier this year in the regeneration team at the GLA, overseeing the Mayor's Good Growth by Design program. She's held a number of portfolios in that team in her time, running development portfolio in northwest London and citywide initiatives around culture, small sites, and small builders, local authority capacity, and social inclusion. Running citywide projects at the GLA means Pooja inherently understands the social, cultural and borough boundaries that characterise our great city. But unlike people like me from our industry, who've spent valuable time carping from the sidelines about problem in our planning system, Pooja got off her ass and did something about it. Um, in 2017, she co-founded Public Practice with her, her colleague Finn Williams, which is, as you all I'm sure know, a social enterprise that places a new generation of architects and planners within government to shape public places for public good. Um, earlier this year, Pooja was included on the Planners Women of Influence list. And on publication of that list, a Twitter correspondent pointed out that the Royal Town Planning Institute has had more people called John as their president than women. So with that boundary in mind, I'm very happy to be breaking with the grinding dullness of convention in our industry and presenting you with a wholly female speaking panel this evening. So first, I'm going to hand over to Selena. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, 
As, as the first speaker and um, a master planner, if you don't mind, I'm just going to reel right out, um, zoom out a bit, and uh, speak from quite a macro perspective. Um, Obviously, when I was asked to talk here, my first question was to myself, well, what do we mean by, what do we mean by borderland? What do we mean by edge? And, I mean, there's an obvious, there's an obvious way we can think about it as an administrative or physical boundary of some sort or other. And certainly, working on the Olympic Park for many years, that was probably how I most likely conceived of it. That was, that was my daily grind, the idea of this, um, this boundary. The Lee Valley obviously had been the boundary between uh, the Danelaw and um, Alfred's uh, Wessex, and it has remained a boundary in London ever since. Um, it's now the Olympic Park we were kept grappling with working amongst four London boroughs, and to some extent I think the evidence of the abandonment that we found there was the result of that edge land, that uh, the consequence of all those four boroughs looking inwards to themselves. We have this tendency in this country, I think, to be very bureaucratic and very centrally focused, whether you're in a London borough, whether you're in London, whether you're in the nation, you're always looking to the centre, wherever you are, which means your edges are invariably left somewhat behind. And the Olympic Park, I think, we, that's, to some extent, we found it neglected and somewhat feral which wasn't a bad thing. There were some great places in there that enjoyed that freedom to do whatever they wanted. The Manor Garden allotment, for instance, was the most beautiful, picturesque, extraordinary place. And uh, it had become like that because it was very much part of a world that was left to its own devices, somewhat ignored. And they enjoyed that privilege of being ignored. Um, there were other aspects of it. Fridge Mountain, the contamination, the environmental degradation... Uh, were also part of that story, but it became an amazing environment for those of us amongst Londoners who enjoy that freedom to do stuff without anyone really bothering about them. There was an amazing art factory in the old Yardley factory on the banks of the, of the uh, Waterworks River where Rachel Whiteread had a studio, Grayson Perry had a studio, James Riley had a studio. My husband even claimed to have seen a leopard on the, uh, on the banks of a canal that was probably about 25 years ago as he cycled to and from his studio. So it was a wild, abandoned, feral place. And uh, there was a kind of... The freedom in that, to some extent, obviously was lost as we took, a, took the place, created an administrative centre once more. In order to do it, you have to create an administration that's capable of dealing with that boundary. LLDC is effectively that. And it will be interesting to see what happens subsequently as LLDC in event eventually cedes back authority to the to the uh, the boroughs. Will it will it come will it become something that becomes more embedded in in our city as a result of that? Will it become abandoned again at some point in the future because those boundaries will become a more significant part of its story again? Um, I'm also working at the moment on a project in Milan, and. What I find there is something quite interesting because I find myself traveling to and from Milan, arriving here in London, looking at the edge conditions in our city, London, versus the edge condition in Milan. And I think it tells us something quite interesting about the way that we operate as a city. As I say, I think we're very centrally focused. We're always looking inward. Our suburbs are very like, are like sunflowers. They, they, they focus invariably into the center. And looking centrally, they then create this strange land of kind of sleepiness, inactivity, and difficulty during the day. Largely because the way in which our infrastructure is built, it connects us 
to the center, but it disconnects us locally. Uh, and that's, I think, something that I found on the Olympic Park, that the physical infrastructure, it wasn't just the boundary, it was also the fact that progressively over the years, of, over the last 200 years, we had a canal built, there was a railway built, then there were roads built and motorways built. That then isolated the place from the rest of the city. And transversing infrastructure is one of the hardest things in any city. And how we deal with infrastructure, it seems to me, is probably the beginning of the issue about dealing with those boundary conditions. The interesting thing, I think, about Milan and London is London is focused very much on a kind of use-class approach towards planning. In Milan, it's much more free, much more, free, much more relaxed. There's more um, interest in familial connections, and that family connection creates some, a city which is much more mixed up, much messier. It looks messier. Our, our edge condition around London is quite neat and tidy. It's all it's all trimmed verges, whereas Milan is a complete chaotic mess. But you can see that life exists in a very sustainable way around the edges as much as it does in the center. There are suburbs that work both as working places, as living places, and as entertainment places. They're all mixed up and jumbled up in a way that really works for the people. And my sense is that a lot of this is actually, perhaps we should think about edges and borders, less about administrative boundaries and more about emotional boundaries, more about the way in which life functions, and that we need to try to create a planning system that allows that freedom, something of the spirit of the Olympic Park that we found when we got there, that freedom to act and to behave in a way that works for people from the bottom up, as well as obviously from a, from a strategic perspective down. It's one of the hardest things to do as a MOS planner, is to allow freedom to enter into your master plan in a way that is meaningful to people. And yes, I think it's probably one of the most important things we can do. When I read, for instance, Family and Kinship in East London, which was published in 1957, it was a seminal report about the way in which communities behaved. It was an unusual report. Typically, people were just did stuff and assumed that they were doing it for the benefit of the people. This report actually looked at communities and how they functioned and how they existed and what kind of social context they existed in to support them. It found, I, I remember being completely intrigued by this idea, it found this road out here, Cambridge Heath Road, people who lived to the west of it rarely knew people who lived to the east of it, even if they lived with literally within a stone throw of each other. The boundaries, the kinship boundaries were physical in the sense that they identified places within the city that the, they knew that their society didn't stretch beyond. The West End, for people who lived on this side of Cambridge Heath Road, was Bethnal Green. It wasn't the West End. The West End itself was called the Other End. And I think that that's something that we should be picking up. We should be really understanding places and those nuances of how people understand and identify the place they live. I live in East Finchley, and I know that I'm on the boundary. I'm on the western boundary of the area I live in. I don't know why I know that. I just know that. I know that the high road is a sort of boundary in my locality. And I know that the, the, the eastern boundary is much further away. And I think probably if all of you thought about where you live in London, you'll probably recognize that kind of emotional boundary of the society within, you, within which you live and the place that you live in. And a lot of that is, I think, dictated by our neighbors, our, talk, our conversations with neighbors, the kind of place that we live in and the kind of conversations that we have on a daily basis, those sort of rituals of daily life I think it's help us, help us know where we are in the world. And so from my perspective, I think the key thing about boundaries is 
Yes, the physical and administrative boundary has an effect, but actually more fundamentally than that, I think we need to understand and uncover the emotional boundaries. And that, I think, will tell us a slightly different story. Great, Celina, thank you. Um, next up, Sarah Featherston. Um, okay, thanks. Um, so I was thinking, I, I think one of the questions we were asked to think about was, can we use hidden hinterlands to create a better city? And, um, and I'm kind of thinking, well, there's a tendency in cities at the moment where land is so precious that every little inch of land is, is used and delineated and described. And I think for me, what I wanted to say was I'm interested in, in the virtue of leaving some gaps and not trying to delineate and sew everything up. Um, and um, so if we look at these hidden hinterlands, these in-between spaces, um, these are usually places, I think, and perhaps this is what um, Selena hinted at as well, they're usually places that actually have got some kind of barrier, um, perhaps emotional, but often physical, and it, often infrastructure, political bound, uh, physical features like a railway line or a, um, a river. And, um, and this, is, this is what I think we mean by hinterland, and this is where I think you can afford to leave some gaps. Um, and so in our own work, um, this idea of leaving gaps is something that we talk about, we, we, we sort of refer to as baggy space. Uh, and I suppose it's trying to explore how little you need to touch something as an architect or a designer or an urban planner, uh, so that other people can fill the gaps. Um, so again, maybe Selena touched on that when she talked about that kind of freedom to act. Um, and um, we recently worked on a project uh, called Bay 20, uh, which was a community project, and um, Martin mentioned it. It was uh, a project delivered in response to the Grenfell disaster. And um, it was located under the Westway flyover. Um, and so its physical boundary is, is, is the flyover, which was something that was built in the 19, early 1970s. Um, and there's a huge history in that area, even before the flyover came, of a very divided community. Um, we had the Notting Hill race riots, in 1958 with the Afro-Caribbean community coming across and there's, there's Irish migrants and it's kind of marginal land and then this Westway flyover opened in the early 1970s and completely divided that community further. Thousands of homes were demolished um, and, um, and no one really thought through what the impact was going to be on the environment and the social, the, the social structure that was there. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, and then I think too late, there were various protests, loads of protests, motorway was closed, um, and then um, uh, 23 acres of land under the Westway and around it were bequeathed to the community. Um, people know this, I'm sure, the Westway Trust were entrusted with this land to make sure it, it provided community benefit. I say all of this because um, this project um, that we worked on um, is one of those plots that were bequeathed to the Westway Trust. Um, and uh, very quickly, uh, it became apparent that this was kind of this in-between space, contested land, a huge history there, 
Um, the Westway Trust hadn't necessarily dealt with this uh, appropriately. Um, there'd been lots of, oh, actually, sorry, Martin, sort of developer-type people that worked for the Westway Trust who had more commercial interests, or at least as this is how it's perceived by a lot of the local residents. Not you, I know, I know. Um, but because we were involved in this project, you know, we were involved in talking to a lot of the people and the communities around there, and um, it was clearly contested land, and uh, um, uh, sort of nothing much had happened to this plot. Um, it had originally been used by the Afro-Caribbean community to make steel drums um, and floats for the carnival um, back in the 40s, and then... Um, not back in the 40s, probably back in the 60s, 70s, sorry. And then, um, and then it was, they were chucked off the land. So, um, so I suppose when we came in on this project, uh, it was clear that um, there were some really difficult issues to deal with um, and a very big divide. Um, and I suppose we were thinking about how do you deal with this conflict and this perceived barrier um, and, uh, and, and it comes back to this idea of how little did we need to do really to um, touch this piece of land, to activate it, uh, not be too prescriptive. Um, uh, so whilst we were being asked to provide some new buildings and a community centre and some of the groups that came forward were the boxing club that had been at the bottom of the Grenfell Tower and had lost their boxing club. So there were things to go under this, this Westway uh, I think we were keen to not completely plug it, not plug this gap. I think we didn't want to create yet another barrier between these different communities. Um, and so we explore this idea of, of, of how you can, um, you can deliberately let this space bleed uh, and create this kind of gap that other people can fill and use it in the way that they wanted to. Um, and I think this is something actually out of London is another project we did um, up in Wrexham where uh, there was, a, it's, it's an old car, it's a car park site uh, and um, it's, it's now a sort of arts and community centre. And again, it was recognising that it was located between these two very different communities, the historic core of the town, it's a market town, and this out-of-town retail development. Um, and um, I think we, again, tried to sort of uh, find a way of, uh, uh, of, of, of not making, not being a barrier between these two things, but actually a kind of space where uh, you can begin to link uh, and let these two separated areas knit back. Um, and in that instance, it was about recognizing or continuing this kind of shortcut through the building. Um, uh, and that kind of filtered right the way down into the building where there was a kind of conflict between the activities that were going to happen in the building. Um, there was, it was an existing market and the market traders were being presented by a new art gallery facility arriving and there was tension. Um, and so again, it was trying to create these in-between gap spaces within the building, which were more experimental common grounds where two different fiefdoms, communities could sort of explore their common ground. Uh, yeah, so I suppose, uh, in bringing it back to the subject today, um, it's a kind of a plea to this idea that we don't have to fill all these spaces in the city um, and that trying to leave some gaps, I, I think, and not sew it all up and not completely delineate it is, is something that we should be looking to try to do. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, so, Pujagra will to finish off this great trio of 
debate. Great, thank you so much. When I got asked um, today to talk about this idea of fiefdoms and uh, I guess neighborhoods and borderlands, for me it sort of comes down to the idea of what people feel like is their fiefdom, what people feel like is their local identity and how they belong. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of identity politics and city and make a kind of very polite request not to quote me on Twitter because being who I am, I really don't want to be open to lots of um, abuse online. So I'm really open to having a big conversation here about race politics and city ownership. But I, yeah, please don't put me on Twitter. So um, London has grown over time from towns and villages each of which has its own kind of centers, its own civic institutions and identities. And even before boroughs and boundaries came into being, people had a really strong sense of a local identity. So people refer to areas that they come from as Tottenham or Bethnal Green or Summers Town and not really Haringey or Hackney or Camden. And in 2014, there was a poll done by Britain Thinks asking a thousand Londoners to choose their dominant identity between being British, English, Londoner, and a sub-London identity. And out of a third of those people who identified as Londoners, actually most of them preferred a more local identity. And it goes back to what Martin was saying earlier about saying people said they were from North London or from South London or from East London or West London. And actually what's really interesting is young people felt much more strongly about um, having a much stronger local identity, particularly in areas of London closely associated to ethnic groups or places that have stigmas attached to them. So I think there are, um, quite, there, are, there are areas in London that do have quite a dominating local identity based on ethnicity. If you think about like Whitechapel or Stamford Hill or Southall. But for the most part, I think ethnicities coexist across London and people come from a variety of different backgrounds. I think these communities coexist, but I do believe that this idea of a mixed community and multicultural London and this idea of diversity is really over-romanticized. And in reality, these different groups don't really interact with each other and actually just coexist with each other. If anything, there's an increasing negative interaction between different groups of people. Since 2016, since the um, referendum, there is a documented rise in hate crime reported to the police with incidents increasing almost a third year on year, which the vast majority of them are racially motivated. Often the blame is put onto ethnic groups for not integrating within British society or not really uh, integrating within London. But what I actually found really fascinating was that in terms of making London their home, people with ethnic minorities are three times less likely to leave London than white British people in the last sort of 10 years. And if we take it really personal, and I know marriage is <laughs> like necessarily a signifier, but if we look at interracial marriage, uh, members of the black community are among the most likely to choose a white partner which is close to 50% for black Caribbeans. And it, as we are moving into uh, a London which has more mixed race communities, 
it's interesting to see the next generation, if you take the black Caribbeans, they are a mixed race black Caribbean, is more like, is 80% likely to have a white partner. But if we then talk about integration from white British people, less than 5% of white people are in interracial relationships. I think identity is really, really complex. It's multi-layered, it's personal, it's emotional. And, you know, I've, I've sort of looked at this in terms of race, but actually this is true with a lot of, um, it's true with lots of identity politics, whether it's sexual orientation, religion, or class. And I guess we just need to think about our own, you know, our sector, the professional sector, but also people we interact with. You know, we tend to be in kind of certain bubbles and sort of think about London very much as our kind of personal relationships we exist within. You know, we can think about LGBTQ plus spaces in London and how actually a lot of these spaces are being lost. So I guess my point is this idea of shared identities and the sort of, the kind of disjunction perhaps between place and personal identity. And if we are getting into the space where places and shared places are not being seen as places we can share across different um, protected characteristics but, and class, I'm really worried that we're moving into a place perhaps where people's identities are more based on specific communities of interest rather than places. So I suppose I'm gonna end with a question is, as architects and planners, what roles do we have in kind of creating or protecting places and creating shared identities? Thank you. Thank you. God, I said at the beginning that London was a city of boundaries and quite realised there were going to be that many uh, in the talks this evening. So physical boundaries, geographic, political, racial, sexual, religious, developed versus undeveloped. Blimey. Um, so uh, do any, the three of you, are, any of you want to come back at anything on that or shall we open it up to let everyone else gob off a bit? Right. The floor is open. Who wants to put their hand up and make a contribution? There's, a, there's going to be a roving mic um, going around the room. Steve, are you a mic person? Ellie Sharp. Hello. Um, that was really nice. Thank you. Um, so I had a question, which is perhaps a little controversial, but um, when designers and developers kind of conceive a new scheme, they're often asked to think about the identity of the surrounding area and the local community. And that can often result in the project kind of catering to the needs and requirements of the local people, which is, you know, obviously celebrated. Um, and that doesn't just go for kind of gentrification, et cetera, but obviously um, cultural identity, et cetera, et cetera. But perhaps should we be thinking more about experience and opening hearts and minds to new ways of thinking, cultural sharing, et cetera, to almost blur these boundaries? Um, I think that's one for Shalina. Did you say Selena? You did. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. I think that we um, we need to get a lot more sophisticated about how we understand when we're creating new places within an existing environment. You know, and, and obviously, I tend to work in environments where we have access to quite large swathes of land and quite complex communities around the edges. Um, <clears throat> and I. 
to my mind, I think that very often neither developers nor designers and often equally planners are particularly well equipped to really manage the process in a way that's forward-looking, sensitive, and visionary. Um, and I think there is a, there's multiple ways that we need to deal with it. I think, firstly, the, thing, the theme has come up, I think, sort of implicitly in all these talks, that actually all of us need to get more diverse in the way that we operate. We all need to have diverse... Developers need to be, to be diverse. Architects and designers and planners need to be much more diverse. Uh, because that way, I think our experiences are going to be able to bring much more to bear on the debate. But equally, it's, um, it is a matter of being less fearful of the conversations that you're going to have. I think that we need to... I think if you, if you have conversations with everybody around the edge of the... more space but often the developers are after you know the profit and so like they're trying to squeeze the rule if the floor to ceiling is 2.1 it's like oh can you make 21999.9 or like uh, you know how can you get away with that how can you get away with that so yes it's true that we should all collaborate together but the culture is not there like the power is on the wrong side somehow I feel often that the public is not giving, it doesn't have enough power to say, you know, there is that minimum, you need to allow the space for the people to then gather together to have the pubs and to have like the squares, to have like the schools and to, and to, and to have the luxury of being able to discuss these topics because we do and we are already on the threshold of, you know, this, this like very thin line between we can understand both worlds, but I think we don't have enough power. Yes, Hugh. Yes, who else? And right off the back of that, I wanted to. I think that's a. What along the lines of what I was thinking was a good introduction because I was thinking about reform and are architects interested in being at the centre of reform? I think we all would look at London and say it's a a commercialised environment. The value systems of that environment may be counter to what we learned at university. I mean, my, one of my very first experiences of practice was in Holland. And I sat in planning committees in Holland, and it was a completely different experience. You know, you had people who were, had a, were there for two to three years. It was part of the system that you had a, a much more uh, wide-ranging um, uh, knowledge base in terms of planning. It was geographers, sociologists, it was residence groups. Everybody was... Um, had their say, and it was seemed to be just very, very easy, you know, to create whole new swathes of city, whole new swathes of suburbs, um, you know, and, and that's a, a culture that... I was amazed when the Rijksmuseum reopened that Andrew Graham Dixon, there was a programme uh, with him about Dutch art, and he, he said, he started off the programme saying, I never was interested in Dutch art because I thought they were too commercial as a country. Um, I find that extraordinary as an architect because I thought, well... Um, you know, this is some of the best architecture that's been built in the last 20, 25, 30 years. The most social, um, social housing particularly. And also combined with the fact that it was a, you know, they obviously have a big issue of land. I've always found the land issue in the UK to be bogus. You know, there is no pressure on land other than the ones we want to make of it. And the Dutch do have a land problem. They're highly commercial. Yet how do they produce housing that's... 50% bigger and a lot more social housing and more enlightened social housing than we do. So 
I think it comes back to what the Boundary State was about originally. It's about um, pioneering of social justice and whether architects want to step into the breach and take control of that. Um, we're in a, a time of need, and uh, I think we are the people probably to do it, but we're reticent in confronting it. Who wants to? Ali, do you want to say something? I think we are seeing a bit of that, and I was at an event with Pooja, oh gosh, last week on Thursday at the NLA, all about public housing, and actually the guy from um, London Community Land Trust was there, and he was obviously talking about the projects that they're doing, and obviously how successful they are as well, but it's, you know, it's a small, small amount of housing or uh, provision that, that, that's actually coming through that, and, and I think, you know, collectively, we all need to kind of get behind projects like that, that offer um, affordable housing for people that put the local public at the heart of actually what they want in their communities and, and they're, they're often best placed but it needs the support of lots of people including you know public authority as well um, to kind of actually make that happen so I think there is more of that coming hopefully um, to report what you're saying and I don't know whether you'd agree but I think it really is happening hopefully. Someone else? Okay I'm going to tell you a story then so <clears throat> about uh, seven years ago I'm going to tell you a story that's going to ask a question that I don't have the answer to. So about seven years ago, my company bought a 25-acre piece of land in West London that used to be EMI's record-pressing factory. It was all that was left of 150 acres of factory where 22,000 people worked in the 1950s. It was where pop music was invented. It was where television was turned into a consumer product. And because it all went wrong in the early 1980s, that place closed. And the gates were locked until 2011. And the town of Hayes, where that factory is, that was built around the success of that factory. It was farmland before that factory came there in the beginning of the 20th century. Was ruined. Uh, most of the people who lived in that town, some member of their family worked at some point in that factory. Or in a company that served that factory. Or in the public sector that served the people who worked in the factories that served the factories. And the market, that great sage said that that place needed to be a business park because it was right in the middle of other business parks in West London, right next to the airport, next to the motorway, next to the train line going west and east. And so a big fat developer bought it and tried to turn it into a business park, but nobody wanted to come there because the micro-geography of that town was unbelievably shit. And so we reckon that that company lost about 100 million quid trying to make that place successful. And the problem was that the planning designation of that site was employment land because it was in the light industrial end of the town and the local authority was terrified that if they let it run to housing they would lose the opportunity to create jobs so block number one developer big fat developer failed lost 100 million quid no other developers want to go near it with a barge pole the community utterly voiceless and n no capacity to do anything about it so what do you do? Um, it, what a fight to try to get planning policy changed, to try to get the community to understand how they could help and have a voice, to find a developer who could see some future in that place with all those huge obstacles. Um, when we first bought it, we invited people who might have worked there or had a connection to the place to come and just have tea. And this goes back to my point about the... Um, digital online connection. I didn't know that anybody would come. And a, a thousand people came to have tea. 
because even 30 years on, there were people whose parents and grandparents and great-grandparents had worked at that place. And it was the most extraordinarily fantastic day. Then we put an exhibition up in one of the buildings of just photographs that we found of the place through its 20th century history. 5,000 school children in a year came through that place to learn about the history of their town that they thought was generally shit, that actually was an extraordinarily important part of London's cultural, industrial heritage. So it doesn't take much, you know, to start a conversation, to get people to find a way together to make something happen. But when you put all those three things together, no money, no developer, no politics, no people, where do you start? Because there are so many parts of London where that is how it is still now today. <laughs> time, time, and time is money. I go back to that thing. Because if you, or we all know that when we are a bit more relaxed, when we allow for some time, when you allow to yourself to stop and have a conversation with your neighbor because you're not in this like rush, rush, rush. When you stop and have a coffee at your local shop and then by chance you meet someone that's there and that has a nursery and knows about someone else that is renting a house. All the beautiful things that I've experienced in a local community always came up from not having to rush somewhere and having the luxury of once in a while just go out without having, you know, something in the calendar and like a pressing imminent thing or like preoccupation for this and that. And it is a luxury in London. I just think so. I think we can help by, as architects, we don't have much power, but we can help inspiring clients and inspiring developing developers um, sort of Telling and, and telling stories because we are story storytellers. We have to convince people and public before something is built. Now we have renders, CGI's, and we have VR. We have everything. But by telling a story and by telling how much you gain back by creating spaces for people, because then people would actually want to stick to that area. Because then it's a win-win. But it's difficult to tell because somehow the economical return has a bit of a slower coming back, and that's, that's my uh, uh, Hello? Oh, yeah. There we go. Um, I'm going to come back back to what we're, we should probably finish soon, Martin, but I, I want maybe to hear more from Pooja, um, Selena, and Sarah. And I'll go back to something that Sarah said earlier about the Westway thing and about breaking down the walls, whether they're real or metaphysical or existential or emotional or whatever, um, on, uh, you know, on, on how you have to sort of take the bull by the horns a little bit on likes of the Westway side. Well, I would just echo what you were just saying, which is that you can't just change things overnight. And it is, and, and, and actually change isn't always what is needed. I think it is often just making very small tweaks, as I said earlier, if anything at all. And there is this, it is important to talk and it is important to hear people's stories and it is important to engage people. But I also think, I think Selena was saying that, you know, we all design with our own person in mind, cool places, etc. Um, I think also as an architect, you just have to rid yourself, try and rid yourself of your own person be something else um, 
observe. I mean, I think observation is a major thing as well. It's not just talking. And you have a power, I think, being quite a visual person, you know, to sort of observe behavior, social patterns, see what's happening there. And there's so many clues on that level that it really does, to me, it comes down to just really small things, just gradually. Uh, which, as you say, doesn't economically always make sense, um, but it can do because you don't have to expend an awful lot of money to make some quite small changes that can instigate something else. So I think there is something in that, um, which I probably haven't had, can't exactly pin down and suggest how that happens on bigger scales. But um, yeah, the butterfly effect. Hmm? The butterfly effect. Do you want to wrap up with any <laughs> pearl of wisdom? <laughs> um, the next time you complain about how slow the planning process is, use that as time to speak to people. <laughs> Selena, do you want to add a last comment? I'm not sure I can beat that. That was perfect ending, actually. Um, I guess I would just say that... Uh, it sort of comes back to what Sarah was saying. I think it's a, it is a question in the end of leaving things unsaid. The Olympic Park, if you go, you know, going back to that, I think it's, it still has to find its own place in people's mental map of London, you know, despite all the design that's gone in there. I think there's still, it's still a little bit unknown, and I think it just needs to start to develop its own patina of, of use and function and somehow or other we need to design places that can absorb those individual those those individual contributions whether it's um, a person of agency in a community who manages to make change whether it's somebody who wants to invest in a in a space and do something different whatever it is i think it is creating those spaces that allow for a community to create its own, its own identity over time. And it is about time in the end. I think a lot of master planning in the end is all about time. Changing a place is all about time. Thank you. You want to wrap up? Okay, so let's wrap up. So first of all, let's just say thank you so much to our very fine hosts this evening, to Paolo and Hugh and Steve, uh, for their warm hospitality, to Bobby and Rob for sorting it all out, to our... Uh, three really fine panellists who've helped us to have, I think, a really good conversation this evening. So to Pooja and Selena and Sarah, let's give them a round of applause, please. And thank, thank you all for coming and being noisy and opinionated and great. Thank you. And can I also say to Martin, thank you very much, Martin, for taking the coolest position of any chair that we've had so far. There's a kind of a Negroni gnome on the end of the bar there. So, uh, yeah. Uh, by all means, everybody stay longer. The whole point is a conversation, not presentation. So, uh, eat, drink, and be merry. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. <laughs>